Hey, Roxy. Uh, Caitlin, do you um, have a cold or something? Sure. Yes, that's exactly right. I am Caitlin with a cold, and I'm not Tyler Huckabee. Come to join you as a guest host for a series on <laughs> Christian books that may or may not have done lasting damage to our sense of well-being. Have you tried hot tea? From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a midwinter series. I'm Roxy Stone. And I am, for real, Tyler Huckabee, and we are calling this series Apocryphon. Woo! <laughs> I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. On every episode of this show, we're going to talk about a popular, influential at least lucrative, Christian book from the 90s or 2000s, and not only how it shaped American Christianity, but also some of our own personal faith journeys. And yeah, we're going to talk about how it's aged in this uh, current dystopian Christian nationalist hellscape. (laughs) And to wit, on this episode, we are talking about... Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Roxy, what do you remember about your Blue Like Jazz era when it first came out? Or what was it when it first came out? I mean, I think I read it pretty early on. It was either like my last year in college or right after college. It was mm-hmm. right in that time period. And I was kind of just coming out of a weird church experience, like a college church experience that... If you spend too much time on the Wikipedia page for this particular church, the court cult comes up now and again, (laughs) danger, toxic, et cetera. So that particular church had a a lot of rigidity around it and legalism Uh around it, particularly for a college church. And uh, Blue Lake Jazz felt really refreshing. It felt like it asked a lot of the questions that I'd been asking and felt like a chance to sort of scrutinize that per- a particular era of evangelicalism that I feel like I had been steeped in. Yeah. I was also at college, uh, like at a very, like a pretty fundamentalist, I would say evangelical Christian college. And mm-hmm. the experience was the same. I remember coming back from like summer break and my friend being like, you've got to read this book <laughs> blue, like jazz, because mm-hmm. it felt like such a similar to you. I think in the college context for me, at least it was just so it was, it was very strict, which didn't feel that strange to me, but I was starting, I think in college, you're starting to sort of feel the run up from like what the things you want to do and the person you're becoming and mm. uh, like the evangelical culture, fundamentalist culture around you. And here comes this book, Blue Like Jazz and Donald Miller saying, kind of giving you permission to feel that tension and that that tension is, doesn't mean you're a bad person. And in fact, there may even be some spiritual good to exploring mm-hmm. that tension. And that was huge for me and I think huge for a lot of people in our demographic. Yeah. I was also a lit major and Uh I remember just being really happy that there was like a good, well-written 
book yes. in Christian circles to be reading. And I think that at the time, maybe that impressed me as much as anything else was that I felt like I was reading something I might have read in a memoir class. Not a preachy, hit-you-over-the-head kind of Christian book, but something that I could really legitimately say, this is good. This is good writing. It was a very popular style at the time, to that like mm-hmm. kind of memoir e. There's like that million tiny pieces one that was on Oprah. Like this was a season of memoir books and collections of essays. And this one comes in. And I think is actually like a very good example of mm-hmm. how to do that sort of thing really well and did it within a Christian context that really hadn't been done in that way in Christian publishing, at least as far as I knew. So it, it was a kind of a BCAD moment. A BCAD moment? Yeah, there was like before and then this book comes in and there was what comes after and that was a pretty big deal. Right. I think the book, you know, given the benefit of many years of hindsight now, I don't think it was a huge departure theologically from a lot of what we'd grown up with, but it was, to use the modern parlance, it was a bit of a vibe shift (laughs) (laughs) away from the sort of prioritizing of doctrinal certainty and emphasis on the rules and towards sort of that acceptance of doubt or the gray areas and the sort of evolution of faith in one's life. Yeah, Blue Like Jazz ended up being a vanguard for a lot of people who didn't want to leave Christianity, but they knew they couldn't stay either. More about that coming up. But first... A pop quiz. Okay, so just to test your knowledge and get us all on the same page, I have prepared this pop quiz to test your recall. And by that, you mean humiliate me on a podcast. Well, that (laughs) depends on you. So uh, (laughs) I just have a few questions here. First question, what was the inspiration behind the title? Well, here's what I remember. I remember it being about jazz that like jazz is iterative. It can be spontaneous. It builds on themes or templates, but it's not, it's not predestined and set in stone. Uh And he was making some, some perhaps obvious now metaphors of Christianity that it can be a little bit more loose, a little bit more personal, evolving, iterative, spontaneous, but I don't remember where the blue came from. Like that's uh-huh. just the color he sees when he thinks of jazz. I don't know. I think I can give you full credit on that one. I'll read you the quote. He's, he's okay. this, is, this is from the beginning of the book. He says, I was watching BET one night and they were interviewing a man about jazz music. He said, jazz music was invented by the first generation out of slavery. I thought that was beautiful because while it is music, it is very hard to put on paper. It is so much more a language of the soul. The first generation out of slavery invented jazz music. It is a music birthed out of freedom, and that is the closest thing I know to Christian spirituality, a music Mm. birthed out of freedom. Everybody sings their song the way they feel it. Everybody closes their eyes and lifts up their hands. So, Mm. yeah, you were correct that blue does not really come into the equation there necessarily, although it made for a very good color choice. But, yeah, music birthed out of freedom. There's some, as there are in certain parts of this book, maybe some kind of, uh, you know, some Rachel overtones that feel very not 2023, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you are correct on the merits. Oh, thank you. Next question. 
At what liberal arts college did Don audit classes? Reed in yes, Portland. That is correct. Which Portland remains the boogeyman of <laughs> the conservative <laughs> circles. So not everything has changed in maybe the because last of 20 this, years. Maybe it's because of this book, because he really <laughs> describes it as like a very, like this godless anarchist hellhole that he happens to find these little pockets of like spirituality or even like things that aren't necessarily Christian, but kind of inform his faith. But he makes no bones about the fact that Reed College was a very like kind of liberal paradise that was not friendly to Christians in his depiction of it so yes free mm -hmm. college is correct last question you may remember that this book has like a lot of recurring characters in it, like friends-esque community that he puts together mm -hmm. and many of these people went on to become famous christians or semi-famous christians in their own right can you name three of them mm. Well, I remember Mark Driscoll was in there. <laughs> yes, Mark, the cussing pastor, as he is known in this book, is he is a he is a character. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. It's weird that they used to be in the same breath. It's it's a very strange. Life is long, and it takes you on a lot. Of, it's a wild so ride. <laughs> <laughs> and he was sort of a fun, like he was kind of like curious about the cussing pastor. Yeah. It, it was what Mark wanted to be. I think the rebel pastor, but you know, now we all know. Right. Right. Penny. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was like a good friend and then in the movie was kind of portrayed more as a love interest. That's right. The movie, yeah. which came a little, little ways after this, Penny became like a main character and sort mm -hmm. of a romantic interest, mm. which isn't necessarily how she's depicted in the book. I can't remember any others. You've got people like Tony the Beat Poet. Oh, yeah. He's a pretty regular character. You've got uh, a lot of people don't really have names. There's like this right. author he references a lot who's just the well-regarded author mm. um, who I tried to dig into a little bit and figure. I did try to do come up with a conspiracy theory for who it could actually be. And I don't nothing quite works, the, the theory that I found. So I don't know. But Laura is another main one. Uh, Laura shows up a lot. And then there's like the series of crushes that he has, right. and whether how they how they inform his faith or don't. Uh, so I, I think it can give you, what, you got two out of three. Two out of three isn't bad. You pass. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> you actually read this book, or at least you read the Wikipedia about this book. Oh, I read it. I read it more than once, honestly. Let's talk about why we picked this book, Tyler. Why did you pick this book for our first episode of Apocryphon? I think that when we started thinking about books that should be on a podcast like this, there was a lot of sort of low-hanging fruit, some of which we will probably get to in future episodes of this podcast, and I'm sure people can guess what those might end up being. This one just seemed more interesting because it is there the the legacy it casts isn't quite as maybe black and white as a lot of other ones mm -hmm. are at least in our thinking. This book is very important to me and rereading it for this podcast it was really interesting to recast it based on where I'm at now as a, uh, <laughs> a deconstructed <laughs> ex-evangelical heathen compared to who I was at the time, which was like a aspiring youth pastor in the Southern Baptist convention. It brings two very different attitudes to mm. it. So I was, I just found this one to be more of a, it'd be interesting to talk about instead of just an hour of us making foot, like doing Mystery Science Theater 3000 over a John Piper book or something. We'll do that another time. Yeah, it'll come. Don't worry. We didn't plan this, but it just so happens to be almost exactly 20 years this book was first published. So uh, happy 20th anniversary to Blue Like Jazz, the morning star of the... Uh, 
emerging church and <laughs> it's follow up the evangelical. <laughs> uh, we'll have to talk to about the emerging. Yeah, let, let's, let's let's get into that in a minute. So this book, just for some context, it did not make a big splash when it debuted. It took a really long time for this book to sort of catch on, but it did become a word of mouth hit. Uh, eventually, it hit the New York Times bestseller list. In three years, it had sold 500,000 copies. And in the fourth year, it hit a million copies. So nice. when it did hit, it became a really big deal. A million is still like not that big compared to some of the books we'll be talking about later, but it was certainly big for a Christian memoir, mm-hmm. for a vibe show like blue like jazz certainly yeah. very unexpected i mean i remember it being all anybody was talking about in my circles sure. and mm-hmm. this was driven home to me a few weeks ago when you did a twitter poll in advance of this episode asking people for their memories of reading blue like jazz their thoughts on it now and a lot of people responded and reading through their comments really, it brought up a lot for me. I was like, yeah, you know, there was a lot there that I thought, wow, this was a shared experience that many of us who kind of came of age in those early aughts, we we had just sort of like flown the nest a little bit from Mm -hmm. our evangelical homes and spread our wings. And there was blue like jazz. (laughs) Well, uh, some of the people who who responded said it better than than I probably could. Joshua Peace, uh, a friend of mine who you may have seen in the Shiny Happy People documentary, a mm. pastor who gives some thoughts there. Josh said, uh, Blue Like Jazz was the first modern Christian book I read that saw beautiful writing as a value in mm-hmm. and of itself, which we kind of discussed, but I think you really can't underestimate that as part of the reason this book took off. I don't think before this book I read any modern Christian books just because I wanted to learn more about how to write well, but Blue Like mm. Jazz definitely informed my like writing style in those days. Mm-hmm. Emily K. May wrote, I read it, I think, senior year of high school, and it seemed so edgy then. I think it was my first step into a more inclusive faith, humanizing folks that evangelicalism had dehumanized and a recognition that the evangelical system was perpetuating hurt. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably the most Insofar as you can distill its legacy down to that, mm-hmm. I think that is like a huge part of it and a really very positive part of it. Absolutely. I think that's what a lot of people took from this book, maybe even more so than the book itself warranted people taking from it, Yeah, which we can get into a little bit. But I think a lot of people remember, like, for example, the... Uh, uh, the confession booth at yes. Reed College, uh, yes. which we can get into in a little bit, but things like that, where it's the idea of talking to people who aren't Christians in a sort of a lateral way, coming alongside them and seeing them as a person with their own beliefs that are valuable and that are worth being respected and yeah. noteworthy and they're worth loving in and of themselves, not just as a project to turn into a Christian, hopefully down the road when they become like actually worthy of love. You know what I mean? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it really interrogated and troubled my ideas about what it meant to like evangelize yes. as a project, like you said. Yes. And I think also gave me a real, my first real sympathy toward people who had been hurt by the church and what that might mean for them, that it's not like an easy thing to just get over. Exactly. Yeah. That's worth paying attention to. The last one I'll read for now, because I think this is worth pointing out to Nick Richtmeyer said, uh, he's an artful writer and realized that crafting narratives to fit your discontent was a marketable skill. The parallels between marketing and religion were embryonic in the book, 
but were central to the late evangelicalism he was swimming in at the time, which sort of tilts its head a little bit to something that we do need to talk about at some point, which is his post-Blue Like Jazz career trajectory, which a lot of people brought up mm-hmm. in the responses here. A lot of them. And is a, a kind of a fascinating PS or like sequel to this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. For those of you who know Donald Miller, you'll know what these folks are talking about. For those of you who don't, well, we will get into that and much more after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Get the dope on the Pope. Hey, that's one of Caitlin's favorite lines. <laughs> Sorry, Kate. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City or now here on Apocryphon, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. And if you have some suggestions for us you'd like to see us talk about, well, we would love to hear that too. Hit us up on social media. You can find us in all the places. Instagram, threads, Twitter, slash X. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're everywhere. Uh, we're everywhere, except TikTok. Or you can email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. Hey there, Curious Minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, But I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. We've talked a lot of vibes so far and hinted at the book's connection to broader movements and sort of the zeitgeist at the time. But what actually happens in the book itself? (laughs) Uh, Good question. Even after you read it, it's kind of hard to walk, I think deliberately, a little hard to walk through the book's main point because it's intentionally all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's written as a memoir, but it's not really linear. The the essays aren't. We jump around a lot in Don's story. It starts with his childhood in Texas, and then we kind of move on fairly quickly to his time at Reed College. Some of that is covered in other books, what happened in between those two stages of his life. But Reed is where the bulk of this book takes place. Don populates this book with a cast of characters, and a lot of the book focuses on his conversations with them, the little adventures they have, and some of the aha moments that he has along the way about God, theology, the church, etc. 
insofar as this book has a main like driving thesis, which is maybe not too super fair to it, there there is a this excerpt from near the end of the book that I think sums at least what a lot of people took away from it. He writes, quote, at the end of the day when I am lying in bed and know the chances of any of our theology being exactly right are a million to one, I need to know that God has things figured out, that if my math is wrong, we are still going to be okay. And wonder is that feeling we get when we let go of our silly answers, our mapped out rules, and we want God to follow. I don't think there is any better worship than wonder. I think that's a very poignant and really a very lovely thought that I agree with. And I think that the sort of freeing you from thinking about Christianity as this uh, like multiple choice test that you have to get right mm-hmm. on the day of judgment or else, you, you know, that was something that I think a lot of people grew up with. And Don comes here with permission to say, that's okay. We don't have everything right. We're probably not going to have everything right. You're not always sure that this thing is even real, but you're sure enough. And, and maybe that's uh, the rest of it can kind of follow. Vibe shift is the right word. But, and so, mm-hmm. but I think that was the major vibe. Well, that and maybe a few aesthetic things. Yeah. I mean, and even just hearing that quote now, like it sort of makes me feel a little teary because I remember how much that hit me at the time and how right mm-hmm. it felt and how much I wanted to lean into that kind of Christianity instead of a Christianity that had kept me up at night anxious about the rules that I'd broken or the ways that I was angering God or the missed opportunities I'd had to evangelize or any of that. I felt like this book represented a kind of peace, a kind of free and beautiful faith instead of one that felt just so driven by rules and anxiety. At that time, you know, this is this is an era where at least I and I think a lot of other people are starting to get very there's a lot of cynicism and disillusionment coming in with regard to like the Republic, you know, the, the invasion of mm-hmm. Iraq is happening, which and, right. and I think there's a lot of people who are really losing faith that yes. the Republican Party and the Christian Church go hand in hand. But you've been told your whole life that you can't really separate the two. And so that's very scary to start thinking that way for many, at least it was for me. And then right around the time that like Obama shows up on the scene, you also have Donald Miller, these two who would eventually go on to do some work together, actually. Mm-hmm. And kind of Don, something that he does kind of regularly throughout here is actually calls out the Republican Party, mm-hmm. but not necessarily criticizing it, but making it clear that he doesn't think the church and Republican and the GOP politics have to go together, which was now, I mean, that would still be radical today. And I don't even know if Lifeway would carry this book today. But it was it was very wild to read something like that. And it was, for me at least, a huge relief. It is interesting to think. Like, this was the Bush era. Pre-Obama. Very pre-Trump. And it just feels so different tonally. I mean, it feels like a nascent version of what I hear a lot from ex-evangelicals now or Mm -hmm. deconstructing evangelicals. But there's definitely been a vibe shift since this vibe shift, which is like, (laughs) this was gentle. Like this was like a sort of gentle move away from a particular kind of evangelicalism of the nineties that was a lot of like seeker sensitive mega churches and purity culture and this was an early pushback against the GOP and Republicans. And people were really angry at Bush at the time, but it just, all of that seems 
so much tamer than the pushback yeah, of like it, the Trump years, you know? For sure. Because <laughs> it was. I mean, there were obviously protests happening. And Don describes mm-hmm, going to yeah. some of these protests in the book. Mm-hmm. I get the kind of sense that he was like, he's a little careful about it. But I get the sense that he was not a fan of mm-hmm. W. Bush. Mm-hmm. I think he would probably cop to that now. Kind of like you're saying, we, we mentioned this earlier, but reading it now, it is striking how orthodox it really was. Mm-hmm. The reason this was able to be sold in life was because it didn't say anything theologically or doctrinally all that radical. Mm-hmm. I had people at my very conservative college, I had professors who were who were assigning this book to mm-hmm. read, which right. there was a lot of things they would not assign, they would not want us reading. So I think that probably speaks to how, given the benefit of hindsight, or compared to what we would call exvangelicalism or deconstructing Christianity today, this was not this was not a progressive book. It probably barely even qualifies as a liberal. But the vibes were were mm-hmm. enormously different from most of what we were read, or at least what I had been reading up until that point. Somebody may have said this, and I apologize if I'm taking somebody else's review as my own, but something to the effect of the lyrics stayed the same, but the music was a little different, mm-hmm. which I think is a fair assessment of of a lot of this book. It didn't really, I think insofar as exvangelicalism means sort of deconstructing certain evangelical theologies and beliefs about God mm-hmm. and Jesus no, and salvation that. and hell and LGBT people and all of that, it didn't tackle any of these subjects. No, its main thing was what we were taught was true, how people are living it out, and the example that the church is offering, that's what's off. Yeah. The theology, the way that we have come to believe that theology even is still right. It's just the church is off track. Uh And now I think the deconstruction is a lot more like, ah! Did we get that right? (laughs) Did we really interpret the Bible correctly there? Has that actually been like skewed by the patriarchy for centuries? Yeah. And this book remains like, you know, it still remains very much. I mean, it's Portland. It's Mm -hmm. a very white book. And we don't really hear the idea of of queer people is not referenced in it, Mm -hmm. probably deliberately. But you do have moments, like we referenced earlier, the, the confession booth. There is this scene that a lot of people brought up when I asked about this on social media. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there is this like long weekend at Reed College that is supposedly just like people are, are getting drunk and they're getting high and they're streaking across the campus. And Don and his little cadre of Christian friends who, it sounds like, don't feel very easy about talking about their beliefs when they're at Reed, mm-hmm. decide to build this little confession booth. And they go inside and offer to take confessions. But the jump scare when you get inside (gasps) is that they are the ones confessing to you. So they confess, we're sorry that the church has hurt poor people and has not been very loving to, you know, to to the marginalized communities. And Mm -hmm. the idea, at least as it's pitched, is there was no expectation of, and now they have to confess to us or anything like that. It was just acknowledging those things were real. They were painful and Mm -hmm. they shouldn't have happened. Not making any excuses for it. That, I think, is... Is it gimmicky? I don't know. I I feel like we talked about this maybe offline a little bit. I felt at the time that it was gimmicky. I mean, I remember reading it then when it first came out and being and thinking, that feels a little gimmicky. But now I actually, like, look back on it and I think, actually, that was, like, pretty interesting and brave. And an early form, I think, of an ownership that the church has really gotten, has really been mis guided and has hurt a lot of people along the way in doing so. And I have weirdly more tolerance for that 
particular moment <laughs> in the book now than I maybe even did then, even as I have sort of like come to feel more skeptical about other aspects of the book. Like, for example? Well, like some of what we've been talking about, just uh-huh. in terms of like, it's not really questioning a lot. It's giving people permission to feel, but it's definitely not, as you said, a particularly progressive book theologically. We're just in such a different place now. And I think there's so many things that the book didn't ask questions about that we would be very scandalized that it didn't ask about (laughs) at this point, you know, particularly around race or around sexuality. I want to touch on that just really briefly here. Race comes up kind of, I would say, a strangely Mm -hmm. large amount. And I want to be careful here because this was like pre-Black Lives Matter, pre-Trayvon Martin, a lot of white Christians were very insulated from the black church and from liberation theology and other things that I think have, for all I know, really informed Don's perspective since this book was written. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. And I don't want to hold Mm -hmm. him to something he wrote 20 years ago in a mean way anymore than I want to hold myself to things that I could have written and said 20 years ago. But I think this is indicative of where this book was at. He talks about going to this protest, protesting something about George W. Bush and the, and the Iraq invasion. And he comes back and he kind of gets really soul-searchy and angsty about what he did there because he starts feeling like a hypocrite because he's protesting what Bush is doing or about the, how the Republicans are being mean to poor people or to the people in Iraq, but he's not protesting himself and how he mm-hmm. can be selfish and how he mm-hmm. can be mean. And he says at the end of this kind of longer soliloquy about how much he is the problem, he says, quote, I don't have to watch the evening news to see that the world is bad. I only have to look at myself. I'm not browbeating myself here. I'm only saying that true change, true life-giving, God-honoring change would have to start with the individual. I was the very problem I had been protesting. I wanted to make a sign that read all caps. I am the problem. And this is something he comes back to again and again. Somebody's talking about what a big problem racism is. He skirts the line of saying something close to, well, it's a sin issue, not a skin issue. Mm -hmm. There's sort of this denial of the idea of systemic problems or systemic wickedness in favor of purely individual wickedness, which for him is is sin. And obviously I don't don't disagree with the idea of, of sin, broadly speaking here, but there is a lot of pushback against the idea that protesting for systemic change or broad scale change is at all useful in a way that now reads very, very simplistic, I guess. It feels very uh, dualistic thinking. Mm -hmm. We can either focus on ourselves or on broader societal issues, but we can't do both. Yeah. And I think, again, sort of situating this in its time, I think a lot of us were there. Yeah. And part of that was an emergence out of an evangelical faith that did make everything really personal, including every sin that could be committed. We weren't trained to see things on a systemic level. We were trained to see things on an individual level and a personal level and think, how can I change myself? In the 20 years since this book has come out, I think a lot of us have learned a lot about what it is for an issue to become systemic Mm -hmm. and what it is for a whole society to be at levels well beyond the individual upholding racism, upholding the patriarchy in ways that individuals like can't escape. But at the time, I I think that's where a lot of us were. Yeah. It felt 
true. And it, there's still ways it feels true. Even yes. as it's like, nope, nope, don't stop there. Keep going. You know? <laughs> and I don't disagree that sometimes you do see, I, I think certain groups focus too much on one or the other. And maybe in this mm-hmm. case, I would say, you know, I, I don't deny the idea of, of individuals having being problems, but I don't think you have to be the problem. I think you can mm-hmm. be also a problem. A problem. That kind of gets at what you were saying earlier a little bit where the chief thing that, that Blue Like Jazz keeps coming back to is we got the theology mostly right. Maybe not entirely, but we're, you know, we're in the right, basically the right ballpark with the theology. We've just gotten the general attitude wrong or the vibe mm-hmm. is wrong or the, the praxis, you know, how we've applied mm-hmm. this thing, mm-hmm. maybe in the case of the poor communities or, or the racially marginalized, that we need to adjust that a little bit. And I think that what has ended up happening is a lot of people who read this book continued going down that road and Mm -hmm. saying, what if we also got some of the theology wrong? Like maybe the vibes are wrong because we were using the wrong tools to begin with. Maybe this work is bad because the resources we brought to it were ill-equipped for the job. And that is not something that Blue Like Jazz, that's not a question it interrogates at all. And it's not really something that Don himself has really interrogated in his post-Blue Like Jazz career. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Don's blue like <laughs> jazz career. He wrote some more books. Uh-huh. You know, he wrote Searching for God Knows What, which was one of my favorite of his books. He also went on to make Blue Like Jazz into a movie and wrote a book about making it into a movie, mm-hmm. um, which is really, I think, that's when I would pinpoint a shift in his writing style from writing books to writing about writing. <laughs> Um, and writing about story and sort of becoming like a story brand consultant. Yeah, yeah. He did a lot of, using the word marketing sounds like kind of a dirty word, but but I don't know what else to say about it. He became, he started this thing called story brand where you or your company or your idea for a company could pay a certain amount of money to go and he would help you hone down what your story is as a brand. And this was in the big branding boom of the late mm-hmm. 2000s slash early 2010s. And story brand became, I think, a pretty big. Like it was, it was all around here in Nashville, where I'm at, and where Don is also. And I want to be careful here. Like we've met Don. Mm-hmm. I sat through story brand. I went through it. It was helpful. Like it wasn't a bad mm-hmm. thing. But I think what a lot of people I've seen talking about this book since have started to note is that story brand Don and Blue Like Jazz Don do feel like two pretty different people. Yeah, and I think you know one of the observations that came up several times on Twitter is that it has felt like those early readers of Blue Like Jazz, those folks like you and me that were maybe a little bit younger than Don, but, you know, kind of that same, we were in college when the book came out or around then, like watching the trajectory of a lot of people that would point toward that book as, a moment for them in their spiritual journey toward what now they would maybe define as deconstruction or exvangelicalism or a shift away from evangelicalism. God knows what. Um, (laughs) Anglicanism, Catholicism, Uh, like whatever. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Spiritual but not religious. They've taken a track that feels very different than Dawn took. And so I think that feels 
what honestly sounded a little bit to me like a feeling of betrayal. Like I thought Don was with us. I think that word was even used. Yeah. And actually it feels like he more went and dug into the capitalism that we're all trying to break free of, you know? Sometimes he makes that very explicit. Mm. I remember I sent my wife Liz a a promoted ad that I got on some social media feed. It was him saying he would show you how to make a million dollars. And that, while tempting, (laughs) I've definitely met and encountered a lot of people who feel like Blue Like Jazz led them away from that Mm -hmm. thinking and, and probably towards deeper convictions about capitalism and about the role of like of like private business and what wealth can do <laughs> to you if you get to you know like warnings about the rich in the bible taking those maybe mm-hmm. way more seriously than a lot of the broad or evangelicalism at the time and still today seems to and that was just clearly not a path that done is currently on, whether or not he was ever on, I just don't know. I don't know if he would consider this to be a change, you know, which people are allowed to change in 20 years. Mm -hmm. That's fine. I don't know if he would see where he's at now as being of a piece with Blue Like Jazz or not. Mm -hmm. You can kind of reading it, get the sense that he sees like value in people's cool entrepreneurial ideas. Like clearly Mm -hmm. business has always been something that's very interesting to him and, and that's fine. But I don't think that's something that a lot of like jazz's biggest fans thought mm-hmm. about the book is that like a case of like when people got mad at john mulaney for divorcing as well like they just think they had a special relationship with their yeah. buddy don right he doesn't owe them anything because that's certainly fair to a point but i think whether or not that's what actually happened the feelings they're feeling are very real and and i think we've both come across a lot of them and i think i can see why people would feel that way yeah to your point earlier that this was a before and after kind of book for a lot of people it feels for many people symbolic of a big step in their journey toward where they are today and to feel like the creator of that book, the person who helped them take that step actually didn't go on that journey with them Uh can feel really like a personal bummer. I think in a way that I was really struck by that in the Twitter comments and I would be interested to talk to Don about it. I would too. He knows how to get in touch with us. (laughs) Yeah, he does. (laughs) Well, you have recently gone back and read Blue Like Jazz Mm -hmm. for the assignment of this podcast. What do you think that the book still has to offer the church today? I think there's still a lot of good things in it. I think the writing is a little bit early aughts in a lot of ways. You can tell it was like of its time Mm -hmm. that probably struck me as really revolutionary or really exciting that now I'm kind of like, I wouldn't say it that way, especially about politics and social justice feel dated just because there have been so much things that have happened within the last 20 years around the social justice movement as it relates to the church in particular. I'm glad that I was able to go back and read it with sort of some different eyes that have been informed by people like Jamar Tisby, mm-hmm. by people like the Truth's Table women that's, that mm-hmm. really helped me sift through some of those things. I enjoyed it more than I expected to. Mm. And I'm really grateful that I came across it when I did, because I do not think I would be the kind of Christian that I am today without that book. Yeah. And I'm thankful to Don for that. that. I agree with that. You know, it's not like a blanket endorsement. It's not like fully a 
apocryphon or fully apocryphal. It's like in the middle. <laughs> I think it is a good read to go in with like a filter, not a sponge. So apocryphon or apocryphal? <laughs> Apocryphine. <laughs> Fun is a project of Saved by the City and is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham and Julia Windham. Chaz Russo put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote out our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Tyler Huckabee. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs> Apocrypha farewell.